Grace and peace be with you all. It's wonderful to be back with you. It's been a couple of weeks of travel and a couple of weeks of uh, doing some heavy lifting with our denomination. Zach and Rob Sheely and I traveled up to St. Louis this past week and experienced many good things uh, at our General Assembly. Had a little bit of trouble, difficulties, uh, trouble and difficulties getting back home, but here we are, happy to be back home and happy to be back with you once again. Once upon a time, many years ago, my wife Shannon and I lived in Mexico City. And while we usually took peseros and buses and the, the metro to get around, there were occasions when we would scrape together a few extra pesos and negotiate terms with a taxi driver and actually take taxis from one place to another. And those were always very exciting rides. You didn't know if the taxi driver was going to be sober or not sober, uh, but you knew it was going to be an exciting ride. And so ever since those days, I've been, ex I've been interested in stories about taxis and taxi drivers. And whenever I hear interest interesting ones, I like to kind of read through it and see what's going on. You never know what's going to happen in a taxi. Well, I came across a story worth sharing with you this past week. And the story goes that there was a passenger in a taxi up in New York City who was curious about a site on Fifth Avenue as he's making his way through the city. He wanted to ask the driver about it, and so he leaned forward and he tapped the driver on the shoulder to get his attention. And when he tapped the driver on the shoulder, the driver screamed and lost control of the taxi and almost hit a bus, veered off of the road, got up on the curb, missed a few uh, pedestrians and stopped short of crashing into a diner. There was silence in the cab for a couple of minutes and then the driver collected himself and looked back at the passenger and said, I'm so sorry, are you okay? And the passenger said, I'm, I'm fine and I'm sorry, I shouldn't have tapped you on the shoulder. I didn't realize that that was going to startle you so much. And the taxi driver said, well, today is my first day on the job, dude, I'm so sorry. Uh, I've been driving a hearse for the last 25 years. <laughs> Fear comes to us in many shapes and sizes. And it comes to us for a variety of reasons. In their book, Untangling Emotions, Smith and Groves explain that the word fear is expressed in many different words in the English language. Uneasy, worried, nervous, anxious, tense, uptight, scared, afraid, panicked, terrified, startled, and petrified. There are different points on the spectrum, but all express a version of the same core experience. Fear has a simple message. Something you value is under threat or at risk. That's the message of fear. So how do you respond to fear? The most common responses are to grab hold and to cling on to someone or something because you simply don't want to lose them. Another response is to cringe and to get away from them because you don't want to get hurt by them. And so it feels like your options basically are reduced to two. You can cower or you can confront you can engage or you can exit. You can fight or flight. And this is exactly what we see in Nehemiah's story, and it's what we see in our own story. Now, I want to be clear that not all fear is evil. Some fear is right and good, and some fear is even fun. 
A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I went to see the movie A Quiet Place 2. We asked the girl at the concession stand if she had seen the movie, and she said, oh no, I don't want to be afraid. I don't want to get scared. And her reason for not going was the very reason we wanted to go. We wanted to feel that rush and that thrill. So sometimes fear can be fun. But most of the time in life, it is not fun. Most of the time in life, it feels wrong. It feels bad or even evil. So today I want to show you from the story in Nehemiah 6 that we must fear. We must fear God rather than man. And we're going to start with the fear of man and then move to the fear of God. And the fear of man in this story presents itself in two different ways. On one hand, there are enemies outside of Nehemiah's community who are trying to strike fear into him and stir up in him the fear of man. On the other hand, there are enemies inside Nehemiah's community who are trying to stir up within him the fear of man. Now, since we've already dealt with the outside enemies a couple of weeks ago, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today. I actually want to spend more time on the insider enemies and the fear of man generated there because I think that will resonate with most of us and you will find more relevance in that part of the story with your own experience. But let's look at these outsider enemies. Once again in this story, we encounter Sanballat and his motley crew, and they're stirring up trouble for Nehemiah. They're applying all kinds of pressure as they're prone to do. And the reason they're doing this is because they can feel the momentum shifting away from themselves to Nehemiah. They know that they're losing power and influence and they're losing ground. And they feel threatened by Nehemiah and all of his accomplishments and all of his achievements. And they can tell that Nehemiah has become a rising star in Jerusalem. And so what do they do? They respond by going on a smear campaign and spread propaganda about him. They go around saying, Nehemiah is just doing this because he wants to be king in Jerusalem. And so they try to politicize their pressure. They're trying to draw Nehemiah off sides and distract him from the mission and purpose that God gave him to do. With the ultimate end of destroying him completely. Five times in this story, they invite him out to a remote place for a conversation. And I think it's just one of those providential jokes that we have when we find that they're inviting him to go out to a place called Oh No. And you know what you do when enemies invite you to a remote place? Is you say, Oh No. And that's what Nehemiah said. He want, they want to get him as far away from his security blanket as they can. They want to get him away from the temple, away from the wall, and away from his community. They want to create space between Nehemiah and his God. And so they try to lure him out because they want to do him harm, in scare quotes. Later you find out they actually want to kill this man. And before they kill him, they want him to suffer. And so verse 9 says, They all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. Have you ever experienced anything like this in your own life? Enemies outside of your family, outside of your community, who are trying to bring you down. I'm sure that most, if not all of you, have. You all have enemies in your life who discourage you from doing the right things, who distract you from the things of God, 
who desire to see you fall from grace, who deter you from obeying God's word, and who distance you from the church and from Christian community. You have enemies who want to destroy you in some way. And you feel the pressure of all of that, don't you? You feel the immense pressure because they don't just pressure you once. They pressure you again and again and again. And it begins to wear you out and grind you down. And sometimes you even feel the temptation to cave in to all of that pressure. You feel the pressure and you might even find ways to rationalize that it's okay to cave into the pressure just once, maybe a couple of times. And the reason for that is because, whether you're conscious of it or not, the fear of man is stirred up and it rises up in your heart. In their book, Untangling Emotions, the author says, perhaps the simplest telltale sign of fear in your life is a tendency to ask what if questions. You ever do that? What if questions? I'll give you a few. What if they think badly of me? What if they're disappointed in me? What if I'm not enough for them? What if they make fun of me? What if they don't accept me? What if they don't like me? What if they turn against me? What if they leave me all alone? The authors go on to say, What ifs look to the future and import all of the angst of possible dooms while writing the presence and help of God out of the story. Have you ever done that? Nehemiah was faced with the temptation to do that, and he responded in a, in a very different way. He responded by pressing on and by persevering in the work that God called him to do and by praying. And notice his prayer is very simple. Oh God, strengthen my hands. In the midst of all of this pressure, in the midst of all the temptation perhaps to cave in to the pressure, oh God, strengthen my hands. Don't let them get weak. Don't let them drop to the side. Let me do this work. So that's how he dealt with his enemies on the outside. But I'm more interested today and how he dealt with his enemies on the inside. It starts innocently enough, doesn't it? It's a home visit to a shut-in. All we know about the man, Shemaiah, is that he was confined to his home and that he was a prophet. We don't know why he was confined to his home. Perhaps he was elderly, perhaps he was sickly, perhaps he was invalid. There was probably some legitimate reason why he was confined to his home. But whatever the case, as you read through the story, you learn quickly that someone is trying to play the sympathy card in order to manipulate Nehemiah's heart and emotions. After all, who can turn down the wit and wisdom of a sickly old prophet? The prophet says to Nehemiah, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. And on the surface, if we stopped reading right here, we'd say, well, that sounds like pretty good advice. That's wise counsel. If someone is plotting to take your life and you learn about that evil plot, it makes sense to take precautions to protect yourself. 
If a life-threatening danger is lurking out there, doesn't it make sense to shelter in place? Especially if you can shelter in place in the safest place in all the world, which is the house of the Lord. And if a man who has been confined to his house, who has no access to the internet, no access to news channels, who doesn't know what's happening in the wider world, somehow knows a secret about your life and tells you what's going to happen, you might want to take that counsel seriously. The prophet might as well have said to Nehemiah, Nehemiah, your safety and security are my top priority. We're in this together. If there was ever a time to practice social distancing and take security measures, it seems like this was the time. But Nehemiah sees right through the prophet for hire's hoax. He's a prophet for hire. Nehemiah discerns that the prophet is simply the mouth of Sanballat. Like the prophet Balaam, Shemaiah was a prophet for sale. For a certain price, he would say whatever you wanted him to say it to whomever you wanted him to say it, and he would do it in the name of God. Like the serpent in the garden, he was a worm tongue that spoke half-truths to play on the emotions and to persuade folks to doubt and disobey the Lord. And in this case, he's hired to strike fear the fear of man in the heart of Nehemiah. Why? So that Nehemiah would simply act like a coward and disobey God. And once he did that, his enemies could ruin his reputation, publicly humiliate him, and put his life to an end. In other words, they really, really hated Nehemiah. Have you ever experienced anything like this in your life? I'm sure you have. You've probably had enemies like this and didn't even realize it. Tragically, some enemies come in the form of prophets. More specifically, they come in the form of pastors and priests who will say or do anything to get you to do their will rather than God's will. They will speak to you in the name of God in order to manipulate you. They use fear factors to motivate you to give more, to work longer, to try harder. Because if you don't, there will be hell to pay. God will not be happy with you. And you want God to be happy with you, don't you? And if you want God to be happy with you, then you should do what God is telling me to tell you to do. You ever been there and done that? Recently, some very dear friends of mine were deeply hurt by some leaders in the church they were attending. And they have expressed to me that they feel the bitterness and the gall of that experience. With broken hearts and tearful eyes, they share their disappointments and the frustrations they feel. And one of the last text messages I received just a couple of days ago says, It will be a long time before I trust the church again. Another dear friend and brother of mine is a priest a few cities away from here. And not long ago, a person in his parish was causing him trouble. And so he confronted that person with their sin and called them to repentance. And this angered 
the person, infuriated them. And so the next thing you know, the leaders of his church counseled him to apologize to that person. And the reason they gave is because that person is such a big donor and gives thousands upon thousands of dollars to our parish. The implication is that she who pays the piper calls the tune. But what they did not know is that unlike Shemaiah, my friend is not for sale. If you have ever experienced anything like that from the pastors or priests in your life, I want you to know that my heart goes out to you and my prayers go up to you, go up for you. Some of you have been wrecked and wounded by false gospels of guilt trippers and fear mongers. And the fact that you're even here today giving Christ and the church another chance is an absolute miracle. And I hope and pray that God will give us the grace to steward the mysteries of the gospel with faith, hope, and love in the life-giving joy of the Spirit for His glory and for your good. And if you have ever been wounded by a pastor or a priest, we want to open ourselves up to you to talk and pray with you about that, to sympathize with you and let you know we feel your pain. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world do false prophets and fake pastors even get to come into our life? What is going on in this situation? Well, from the beginning of the world till now, the serpent has been at work. And he's at work spreading his venom through preachers in the name of God. And one reason false teachers get to come around us is for the same reason the serpent was in the garden in the first place. The scriptures tell us in Deuteronomy 13, it's because the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. And I know upon hearing the word test, some of you feel fear rise up in your heart. Because you know as well as I do that we have all failed the test more than a few times in our life. And we've suffered the consequences. But here we are today, once again, and God is speaking to us. And so I encourage you to listen up because today if you hear his voice... You must not deceive yourselves or harden your hearts in pride, but open them up in humility to receive the word planted in you, which is able to save your souls. God is speaking to you once again. Will you hear him? Like us, Nehemiah faced enemies in the form of false prophets, and notice how he responded to them. He responded in three ways. First of all, by perceiving the truth about them, by pushing back against their messages, and by praying against them. He perceived that Shemaiah was not a true prophet sent by the Lord, but simply a profiteer sent by Sanballat. And so Nehemiah did what every prophet, every preacher hates for you to do, is he disregarded him. He ignored him and did not take him to account. And then he pushed back against the prophet's message with courage, not with cowardice. He says, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. In other words, Nehemiah knew his place in the community. He knew that he was serving God's people as a leader in the community, and what he did mattered. The way he responded to enemies mattered. He also knew his place, and he stayed in his lane. 
He knew that there was no place in the temple for him. He was not a priest. He didn't belong there. And if he were to rush into the temple, he's read the Bible. He understands what happens when people who run into the temple go in and don't belong. God does not like that. And so he says, I can't run into the temple and live. God would not allow that. And so I will not go in. But notice here, he prays against the prophet and the rest of his enemies. And how does he do that? He does it by asking God not to forget their sins. And that's a serious request because it's a not-so-subtle way of asking God to remember their sins, to not blot them out, to hold them account for their sins, and to let them share in the condemnation of the devil, which, according to the law, is what they deserve for leading the people of God to rebel against the Lord and to reject His way. So what I want you to see here is that Nehemiah responds to his enemies inside and outside himself by overcoming them with fear. He fights fear with fear. How does he do that? Well, when something Nehemiah values was threatened and he's tempted to go outside the city and fight, he fears God, not man. And when something Nehemiah valued was put at risk and he's tempted to go into the temple and flee, he fears God, not man. So it's by faith that he overcame the fear of man with the fear of God. If you know anything about Nehemiah, if you've been keeping up with our series, you'll know that Nehemiah feared the Lord long before he left Persia and came to Jerusalem. Remember how he prayed at the very beginning of his story when he, before he spoke to the king when he said, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And remember how he confronted his community last week when he said to them, the thing you are doing, enslaving one another, charging interest to each other, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of our enemies? And the people followed their leader in the fear of the Lord. And so in this story, when Nehemiah is confronted with enemies, he simply practices what he's been preaching. We must fear God rather than man. Now the question we might ask is, how in the world did Nehemiah learn to fear God rather than man? And the simple answer is, he learned it from the Bible. He learned it from the scriptures, the word of God. He learned it from the law and the prophets, the Proverbs and the Psalms. And I'll give you a few examples of this. The law says... You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. The prophets say, be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. And the Proverbs say, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And the psalmist says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. 
So Nehemiah learned to fear God rather than man by what in our tradition we call the ordinary means of grace. He learned to fear God rather than man by the word of God and by prayer and by real life experience. It wasn't all in his head. It came out into his life. And we must do likewise. We must fear God rather than man. As we prayed at the very beginning of our service today, we must offer worship to God with reverence and awe. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. And when we worship God rather than man, God puts our enemies to shame. Not us, but our enemies. For no one who fears the Lord will ever be put to shame. So in this story, we see how the turntables... We see the script is flipped and all the fear mongers are made fearful and fell down in their own eyes. Why? Because they realize that if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, they will not be able to overthrow Nehemiah and the people of God. Why? Because God was helping his people rebuild the wall and rebuild their lives. And to oppose them was to oppose God And God cannot be overthrown by man. Now let's bring this story closer to home. One of my favorite animated films is The Croods, part one. Part two is also very good, but I think part one is better. We can debate that later if you'd like. But The Croods tells the story of a prehistoric family that stays in a cave and survives by living in fear of everything outside the cave. The cave is their safe place and they shelter in place as much as as possible. In fact, the only time they go outside the cave is when they're hunting for food and hunger drives them out and they have to face their fears, gather their food and get back inside the cave. Fear dominates their life. They believe the world is dangerous and they are vulnerable and they have developed a family motto that says, never not be afraid. Never not be afraid. I know some families that live by that same motto, even though they never say it. The double negative actually means always be afraid. And some of us can relate to that. Because we live in the, ti- in the chest-tightening, fingernail-biting, hair-twisting grip of fear. Do you know what the most frequent command of God is in the Bible? You could probably guess in context of what I'm talking about. But the most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's easier said than done, right? A few short years ago, I felt trapped in a cage of fear. And one way that manifested itself is that the closer it got to Sunday, the more anxiety I felt in my heart. Several years of dealing with difficult people and suffering demoralizing losses and facing insurmountable challenges in ministry, not to mention trying to hold my family together and love my wife and children well. It all left me afraid, even afraid about going to worship, going to church, 
to perform the duties of my calling. I was afraid of what might come to pass and also afraid of what might not come to pass. And so without going into details, I want you to know that the fear of man triggered in me my flight or fight responses. And at the same time, the fear of God was testing my faith. Doubt, fear, and worry were always on my mind and never left my heart. And I would love nothing more than to tell you that I've overcome all that now. And I never live in DFW again. But that's not true. I still wrestle with all these things, just like some of you do. But then one summer I read a book called Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest by Ed Welch. That book helped me immensely. It helped to reorient my disoriented heart. But I must confess to you that I am still playing injured and still pastoring with a limp. And I suspect I always will. But in the chapter on fear, Dr. Welch says, Do you get the sense that God is alert to your fears? Do not be afraid. God never says anything just to get you off his back. The sheer number of times the sheer number of times he speaks to your fears says that he cares about you much more than you know. He's not so busy that he attends only to macro level concerns. Instead, he is close, and he speaks to the details of all your troubles. Do your troubles seem trivial, at least when compared to the dangers other people face? He knows you and has compassion. He does not compare your worries to those of others, decide which ones get priority, and then give everyone a number based on need. The way he repeats himself suggests that he understands how intractable fears and anxieties can be. God is sympathetic with you. He's not clinically sympathetic from a professional distance. God is existentially sympathetic in an up-close and personal way. God became flesh and blood to help us. And so we must fear God rather than man because God is so Sympathetic, not because God is so stern and scary as some imagine. In fact, he is so sympathetic that Jesus, the God-man, shared in our human nature. He shared in our crude flesh and blood, in all the weakness of our nature. And Jesus entered our story and experienced life among us and suffered for us so that he could be satisfied with us, not to shame us. In fact, we may draw near to the throne of grace with absolute confidence that we will receive mercy and find grace in our time of need because God extends the invitation to us himself and says, come and let me help you. So we must fear God rather than man, for God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We must fear God rather than man because God helps us. 
God shed his own blood, sweat, and tears to help us rebuild, not simply walls, but to rebuild our hearts, to rebuild our lives, to rebuild our families, to rebuild our marriages, to rebuild friendships, to rebuild all that he finds to be true, good, and beautiful in the world. He helps us overcome our lifelong fear of death. He helps us find our courage. He helps us overcome our many temptations to fear man, to flee from duty, to feel shame, and even to fall from grace. Our God helps us. And while you might be tempted to think, well, that was then, this is now, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. And since we have an altar from which we have the right to eat and drink, let us come and partake of the bread and wine that we may participate in the body and blood of Jesus Christ and so receive grace to help us in our time of need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.